Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Over the Bridge podcast. As usual, we are joined by the normal crew, myself, Kweku, uh, we have Bilal in the house, Patrick in the house and Thomas as well. And we're also joined by a special guest who we're going to introduce shortly. But firstly guys, yeah, how's, how's everyone doing? Yeah, yeah good, all good man. All good. Yeah, what's the yeah. latest? Tom, you go first. Um, what is the latest? Uh, it is. There's no quarantine over 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 in in Switzerland, bro. It's it, well, there is, but it just feels kind of nice and easy. And Swiss government were kind of very quick when COVID first came around because it's obviously just above Italy to shut everything down. Um, and because of that, things are you know kind of obviously. I don't think so. I don't think things will ever be back to normal but things are back to normal people are going out and about shopping but you know there's loads of hand sanitizer outside shops and stuff like that and people still keeping a meter or two apart from each other but you know people are out in parks walking around so no it's been pretty pretty good actually so and you know work is cool as well so one week in the office one week working from home and yeah it's it's all good so kind of getting back into back into the swing of things what about what about you guys how are you yeah, Patrick here. Uh, all right, I guess. Like this, this um, sort of weird limbo between lockdown and uh, sort of relaxing the um, restrictions has been a bit of a weird one for me. Like I'm not really ready to sort of start taking chances. Um, at the moment, I live with my mum, who's high risk. So um, yeah, I'm just I'm not super. Uh, quick to jump on like you know going back out and socializing like that going on public transport and all that stuff um but at the same time i'm i'm really struggling with the cabin fever as well so i'm just trying to um work out ways to be a bit more sort of active um whilst being able to socially distance so like just exercising and stuff like that um but apart from that you know no complaints really the weather well this past week was really nice. It's not so great at the moment, but um, yeah, I mean, that's been a positive this week, I suppose. So yeah, I'm all right. Patrick, that was such a British end to what you were talking about, you know. Like, <laughs> the, the weather. Yeah, just, just, just breaking the weather for no reason, man. Yeah, because I'm, oh, I'm looking out the window now and I'm just like, rah, what, what happened to the 30 degrees? Because I like, I like I the warm weather. Yeah. Like, I, you know yeah. how everyone's complaining that it's too hot and... Like, it is mad hot, especially in the UK, because houses aren't built to, like, get rid of heat in the UK. Um, so I get what people are saying, but, like, I fully don't mind it. Like, going to sleep at night, like, it feels uncomfortable, but I, I'm used to it. So yeah. I did, like, that normal thing where, you know, every summer everyone tries to buy a fan and then you can't find one. So I bought a fan and then it started raining and got cold again. So I was like, well, that was a waste of money. But yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I feel like our summer's done now. That was we okay. had that week of summer. And that's it. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm a little bit stressed because just literally just before this, that's why I was a little bit late coming on the chat. Um, I've got two kittens, and none of neither of them have been outside before because they haven't had injections. And I came home to find the window wide open and one of them missing, but I found him again because he was scared because it started raining. So he was, mad. He was waiting on my roof to come back in. Oh, mad. Yeah, so I had to get him down. That was. I've lost, uh, I've lost my cat a couple of times and 
yeah, it's not a nice feeling at all. So it makes me I, feel yeah. like if I'm losing a kitten, I'm how am I going to be a dad? You know, like I can't even look after a cat, man. Well, I mean, luckily babies don't really, they can't really <laughs> run away like that. Yeah. Well, imagine, yeah you know, imagine a baby trying to climb up a roof. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, God. But yeah, glad that you got your kitten back. What about you, Kweku? What are you saying? Yeah, all good, man. All good. Just uh, same as usual, really. Just, just. I guess I've I've gotten to the, the flow of working from home. Um, I'm, I think I've kind of like reached that that position where it's, it's very much normalised for me. So, and I'm thinking about how <laughs> I can readapt to going out more often. And like you said, with this this kind of middle way where we're, we're getting used to people coming out a bit more, um, I'm quite reluctant to fully just embrace it because, like you said, like there's such a high chance of things picking up again. And, um, yeah, it's a little bit worrying. My wife is immunocompromised and... Yeah, so just trying to avoid that. But outside of that, just just chilling, working. Um, yeah, man, same old, really, same old. Can't complain though. Cool. All right, so everyone's good. Um, let us now introduce our guest, who's been patient and quiet in the background. Um, so today we're joined by Azariah. Um, he's a um, a black clergyman from the Church of England, and Today we're going to explore a little bit about his experiences um, being a black man um, within the, the Church of England, institution of the Church of England in particular, and what it's been like. Um, last week we were joined um, by a, a police officer um, who was talking about his experiences there. So it's quite interesting to see how how that um, contrasts in the kind of religious sphere as well. Um, and we had loads of great feedback from from people off the back of that episode. Um, so yeah, let me let me kind of cut myself chatting short, and um, I'll let Azariah introduce himself. Hey, it's great to be with you. Um, yes, as said, my name's Azariah. I am a minister with the Church of England and have been for ten years. And it's uh, I've recently written a book, uh, Ghost Ship, and it looks at institutional racism and the Church of England. And I'm very um, energised by being on this podcast because over the last couple of years, a number of the sorts of themes that have come up that you've shared, things like, are we English? Are we British? Things like thinking about the ancestors, uh, looking at being part of an institution that was set up not with you in mind. All of those sorts of themes have informed who I am and informed my own thinking. And so probably some of your own thoughts and ideas that you've discussed have appeared in my book that's really cool <laughs> it's good to hear <laughs> um but yeah i feel like it just sort of speaks to um a wider phenomenon um as a right of um you know um black british voices um really sort of um writing their own narrative now i suppose and kind yeah. of realizing where they fit into everything so it's good to hear that you know that the kinds of conversations that we're having is like resonating with with people but also um those conversations are taking place in, in in other spheres as well um and i think it's just about you know getting these kind of conversations it's part of the reason why we you know why we started the podcast um it's just about getting these conversations uh you know um amplified um giving them a platform um and i guess um turning them into more mainstream discussions rather than 
sort of almost sort of tokenistic diversity drive uh fringe discussions as it were so yeah it's it's really encouraging to hear that you know we're on the same page with um a lot of fellow uh, black brits yeah absolutely definitely um so i think to kick off this conversation like i find that um you always get a really good feel for people um and their personalities or stuff are very much informed by their upbringing. Um, so it'd be interesting to hear from you, Zariah, like uh, kind of like a little bit about your your upbringing, where you're from, and maybe even your initial journeys into becoming a minister. Sure. So you ask me where I'm from, where I'm really from, where I'm originally from. <laughs> where you really from. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as for all of us, there are multiple ways into that answer. So I um, was born and brought up in Leeds in West Yorkshire and my parents are from the island of Nevis in the Caribbean and in the book Ghost Ship I I look at a disaster that happened. Um, There was a boat called the MV Christina which used to travel between Nevis and the adjacent island of St Kitts and it was only meant to hold 155 people but on the 1st of August, 1970, it had 330 people on it and the boat sank. It's the biggest uh, disaster that happened in the English speaking Caribbean maritime disaster. And that, 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 shaped conversa- that shaped the conversation in my home because people always knew someone was related to some, uh, to some family member who was lost. And so I remember conversations at home, the MV Christina would come up in the conversations and who was to blame and what went wrong. And growing up in Leeds in an area called Chapeltown, it was an area of, of immigration where there was the immigration of the Irish, the Polish. And then when um, those from the, now termed the Windrush generation came in and then later on uh, the waves of, of those uh, from West Africa and other places coming in, whilst uh, a number of, of the white folks managed to come through and use it as a bit of a corridor to something else, from, for the rest of us, the black and brown ones of us, it became a cul-de-sac. Uh, it became a bit of a, a dead end. And so we got stuck there. And so there was a real hope and a real uh, a sense of what we're going to do. How are we going to progress in society? And my mum, it was just my mum and I growing up, she always wanted uh, me to do as well as I could. And one of the things that she used to do, which I'll never forget, um, and I say was because um, she died about 10 years ago now. Um, she, whenever I came home from school, she wouldn't let me get in the door without uh, dancing. So when I got home, I'd ring the bell, we had a special doorbell, um, a special thing. I'd do three rings. I'd go in and then she'd start dancing. She'd say, hey, boy, ding-a-ding-ding. You all right? Ding-a-ding-ding. Woo-woo. <laughs> and and whatever, I was, whatever I was feeling, whatever was going on, I just had to dance with her. She's like, oh, come on, come on. That's it, that's it. Oh, yeah, man. Let me see your shit. Let me hit that. And just this explosion of joy. And that used to wash over me. And whatever I'd coped with at school, However, I've been neglected, rejected, whatever had happened, dancing with my mum in the foyer of our little house made all the difference. And so she gave me a place of welcome. 
and that's what I try to do in my ministry now. Uh, but so often there isn't natural places of welcome. And so at times I go back to those moments with my mum and now I've got children myself. And so I make sure that we sing, that we dance to celebrate something of who we are, our identity, our heritage, which is so valuable and important. Amazing. And yeah, it's such a, <laughs> such a really like heartwarming story about how you can find joy uh, even when you're, you know, you're outside and you're going through certain situations that can bring you down, how your your house becomes a safe haven and a safe space for you. And, you know, things like laughter and dancing and stuff can really uplift you. So no, that's that's something I can definitely relate to as well. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, when you maybe a bit further down the line in your personal story, um, I'm sure you had a, I'm assuming a Christian upbringing. So how did that inform your decision to go on to actually, you know, join the church? Sure. So that decision yeah, wasn't mine. That was, that was taken by my mum. So uh, the island of Nevis, it's claimed, and other islands claim this too, that it was the first Anglican church in the Caribbean. So in 1643, there's a church called St. Thomas's Church. So this is, this is my long heritage, and it's a church that my mum went to, and my dad went to as well, actually. Um, they were part of this church, and, 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 and through, uh, through the centuries, as it, uh, as it became a church for the, for the local people, not just those who had travelled in to enslave, and <laughs> um, it, became, uh, it became part of, part of her understanding of, 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 of who she was. And so my mum really wanted me to, uh, to step into the church. And on my father's side, my, uh, uh, my grandfather was, uh, was, was a lay reader in the church. So he used to preach and he was also the head teacher of the local primary school. So there was a sense of, of church heritage. Mum always took me to church three times on a Sunday. Can you believe oh, that? Wow. So Sunday morning, we'd go there for the service. Sunday afternoon, I went back for Sunday school. Sunday evening, we went back for an evening service where you'd have to put your hand up if you wanted to be converted to Christianity, go from the, the back to the front. And because the Sunday evening crowd wasn't that big, we'd sort of take it in rotation as to who's going to become a Christian which week. Um, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, but, for me, church represented family. It represented uh, a wider sense of opportunity. And in fact, it really was um, my first church in Leeds that, uh, that actually supplemented and put a lot of money towards uh, me going uh, to study and me going to study theology. They put, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pounds um, into the pot to support my my education so it really was a, an economic base for me as well if it hadn't been for the church I wouldn't have had that sense of, of opportunity to uh, to go forward and to be educated right and um I guess then like I've I've, I've had a chance to you know have a have a brief read through um, a brief read through parts of the book and it's something that uh, particularly like in the, in the introductory paragraphs so many common themes um, of our experiences um, in different spheres as well, like come up so, so much and is so prevalent. I guess my question for you is like, what motivated you initially to want to write the book? And what was your, 
your purpose behind it? Certainly. So I mentioned a little bit earlier the MV Christina, the ship that sank. It wasn't actually, it didn't sink because it was overloaded, but there was something that was, that um, had been repaired, but hadn't been properly, hadn't all been properly welded back together. And the people who had um, done the repairs had assumed that the captain and crew would finish it off. The captain and crew assumed that the, um, the engineers have finished off the job. And so each journey it made, it got uh, more filled with water and then, and then it sank. The mm. Church of England, I argue, is like that boat. There's something mm. structurally um, wrong with it. And so therefore, there's been a drive over the past few years in the Church of England to get more black and brown people mm. um, into the church. So there's been trying to recruit, trying to get more priests trained uh, within the organization. But what I'm arguing in the book is because there's something structurally wrong, you can pack us on, you know, we can have more and more and more of us, but the thing is, is going to sink and it's not going to work unless all these things are, are fully addressed. Um, but remind me again of, of your question. <laughs> I think he was asking um, around, so with what was the motivation then for writing the book? Yeah, okay. So part of the motivation for me has, has been um, thinking about my parents' generation and all that they did and have done in order to, uh, to be part of, of, of British society and all that they came and wanted to offer that was refused and rejected. The gifts that they had um, from uh, the churches that they knew back on the, on the islands. Um, and so there's this sense of, of wanting to, to do what I could to uh, bring their story back to life. And then also, I've got three children and I want the church to be a place that they feel that sense of welcome. They feel that their gifts can be fully accepted and that their perspectives and their worldview, their heritage um, can, be, can be held and, and what they have to offer will be received. And the more I heard of people's um, stories, the difficulties that they'd encountered, many of the things that um, works across different sectors. So things like being part of the presentation of a thing, but not the production of a thing. So for example, uh, a church contacted me um, saying, we've just done a, a video on mental health and faith, but we realize that we haven't really thought about um, black mental health. And we really would love to sell this into um, some black majority churches. Could you do us a little bit of a commendation for this resource? Uh, <laughs> so that we can sell it on, you know, and uh, the amount of times I've been asked to be in a poster, uh, mm. to, to be part <laughs> of a, a flyer or something, which, which gives some, um, uh, whoever's looking at it, it, it gives them the impression that this organization uh, is, uh, is far more inclusive than it actually is. And so to be part of the, the superficial story, you know, something that we're familiar with, also, there's things like, um, you know, I can often feel like I'm the ghost in a room, not the host in a room, even if I'm the one that's got the authority. And by that, like one example is uh, I was, um, uh, there was a, uh, a knock at the door of the vicarage and I went to answer the door and there was a lady who lived in the neighborhood and she came to me and we had a nice chat. 
she said that she's going to be moving house and needed um, uh, some space outside the church for the removal van to come. Could I help her get some cones and things? So I said, yes. By the way, I was wearing my dog collar. Um, I was in the vicarage. <laughs> so wow. then went, laid the, you know, helped to get the cones, went into the church with the church key that I had, got the cones. The next day, there's a lovely letter, which I opened, which I saved to this day. And it said um, uh, to the priest uh, of the church, uh, just to let you know, I borrowed some cones. I hope that's OK. There's a lovely young man who helped me out wow. um, yesterday. Um, you know, I hope it's OK that he went and got the cones <laughs> from the church. Wow. <laughs> I had my dog collar on. I was in the vicarage. And that I says it all, really, doesn't it? <laughs> Um, but you know but there's many more stories i heard of black and brown colleagues who suffer in silence because there are so few of us that we can feel quite intimidated by the way in which the structure can go to undermine who we are and so when i was writing my book i when i asked people things they would say yeah this happened to me you never believe this but please don't put it in the book and so eventually I said, what if I took your points but made them anonymous? Mm. Then my inbox began to flood with people telling me their stories and what they'd gone through. And I realized this wasn't, you know, you know when you realize you're not alone in the thing, when you realize actually there's a whole lot of us who are suffering. Uh, there's some, it goes from feeling isolated and cut off to feeling part of a collective. And so that began to change something. And so uh, I think, you know, all those sorts of things were part of why I wrote the book. Can I just, thank you for that, Ezra. Can I just sort of, I think there was something even at the, I mean, there were a few points in the book that were um, really touching and hopefully we can kind of cover them as we, we get on. But one of the things that got to me was the, I think you're talking about when you're in St. Paul's Cathedral and you look up and you see Forgotten for Empire. And I think that kind yeah. of sums up what goes on or, or the kind of attitude that is still held in the, in the Church of England and kind of just points about, you know, you being, you know, you meeting people in the Synod and, you know, saying, them saying, oh, there's no problems with race. And then you're actually uncovering the, um, the facts and the fact that I think somebody had produced a book on, on race and Christianity in 1924. And you yes. raise the question of whether a book, I think it's JJ Oldham, and you're going to have to yeah. produce, you know, will you produce a book, you know, a hundred years on? I mean, we're almost there and you're, you're basically yeah. doing that now so I mean it's a bit of a broad question to ask but why do you think the um why do you think that the attitudes um of the colonial past it hasn't changed so much in 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 the church um and yeah that just I, it's a broad question I think we all have opinions but I just want to see what you have to say about that that, that would be interesting thank you yeah sure I mean we'd love to get some of your thoughts as well because the institutions and the sectors that you represent you know that there's um that there's commonality um there as well so yeah within the Church of England what uh there is the colonial past there is uh going back to um to enslavement there are a number of enslaved Africans um, some of which were owned by uh, senior people within the Church of England. And I argue in the book that even if you're not a perpetrator, um, you've been a beneficiary of, um, of, of slavery. And, and so I think that 
for me, there's, uh, there's some beautiful liturgy, some beautiful prayers, and it's part, it forms what we call the confession. And we say, we ask forgiveness for when we have sinned, and it breaks down into three, in thought, in word, and in deed. Um, uh, through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate faults, as we are truly sorry and repent of our sins. And for me, throughout the history, and my book particularly looks over the last 40 years or so of history within uh, the Church of England, uh, there is, there's been lots of words, lots of times and points at which the Church has said, you know what, we want to turn away from, uh, from what's happened in the past. We want to really provide uh, a rich and inclusive experience for everybody in the church. But what it feels to me is that the, the thought bit hasn't changed. So the words might be good, but if the thoughts aren't changed, well, then the deeds will never um, be long lasting. The deeds will never flow from that. And so for me, part of the, the, the problem with the thoughts is that, uh, you know, black bodies are not avatars. By that, I, mean, I don't know if you're into, into video games uh, where, uh, you know, for, for me, with my age now, I'm thinking of things like Street Fighter. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, Good game, and, though. Perfect. <laughs> it's a classic. It's a classic. You can't, you can't knock yeah, it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I still believe when, as I act and interact with, unfortunately, you know, some of my... Uh, uh, somewhat happens within the institution it feels as if black bodies are just avatars they can take any amount of pain um they they can be kicked around uh mucked around and and they're just going to regenerate they're just going to come back and it's all going to be fine there hasn't been that thought that that bridge um to actually step inside and, and and live a life um, and so it's always been quite theoretical. There hasn't ever been a sense of people really taking this on. Well, not as an institution, because what happens is from time to time, bishops and other ministers will, in their encounter with real people and building real relationships, they'll begin to, to understand something of empathy will begin to stir within them. But then as soon as they move away from, from that place, that area, they resign, things snap back to factory settings and this sense in which the church of england has a template which is hundreds of years old of of a white straight educated man Mm. if you don't match that template you just don't match so women will complain um, about their access um, to uh, the church of england and its structures Uh, those from the lgbtqi community will complain about their um, lack of access those would disabilities uh, will complain about their lack of access so it really does favor one type of person in there's a book called reimagining britain and in my book ghost ship i talk about reimagining reimagining britain and this book was written by um, the current archbishop of canterbury and in it he speaks about uh how um he says you know um he talks about the story of the exodus and this is a, a story in the Hebrew scriptures of, um, of a group of people escaping um, slavery. And, and he says um, that story is less relevant to us now. If you are from a, a diverse background, um, well, the story might have some purchase for you. If you are someone who is 
Welsh or Scottish or Irish, that story might have some purchase for you. But for the rest of us, it's not really, um, we don't really uh, tap into the political power of this story. And the way in which he describes it, the only group he doesn't describe and the group for whom this, this sense of liberation that's necessary from oppression is white, straight males, <laughs> English mm. males. Um, and so there is a particular elitism. The people talk about the old boys network, which operates and operates very strongly within the Church of England. And so I think part of the yeah, I was, sorry, the I, was question, just, I was just going to say, like Justin yeah. Welby and Rowan Williams, don't they have like PhDs or something from Oxbridge and? Well, yeah, kind of um, Rowan Williams yeah, like, was Rowan Williams was actually the uh, like principal of Magdalen College, Cambridge, at the time that I was studying there. Because okay. I used to, I used to see him around the faculty because I did theology, and sometimes they'd just be in there. So that is actually true. They they are scholarly men from very academic backgrounds and institutions, I believe. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, Rowan Williams is interesting, and um, I mentioned this in um, in the book, in that uh, one of the people I interviewed, that's another thing, the book is made up of, of interviews, um, stories, poems, and one of the things I had to do was free myself from the template of writing, uh, writing a book. Um, based on the types of books I've seen before, and so actually it's a, it's a mixture of, of things. But one of the interview one of the interviewees told me a story of hearing Rowan Williams speak, and him saying because he was Welsh, he was also an outsider, and he was speaking to a cohort of black and brown clergy and said, "I will fight on your behalf because I too understand what it is to be outside of an English um, uh, kind of heritage," um, but. Unfortunately, that, that, that didn't happen uh, to the degree that we would have hoped. And so there's always been this sense of longing and hoping and waiting uh, for something to change, something to shift. And so for me, I think there's something about the thoughts. It's always about it's a problem outside. So unless there's proper work done on breaking down white privilege, proper work done on what anti-racism looks like and mm -hmm. feels like, proper work done where... Uh, where people are out of their comfort zones. I, I tell you one thing my mum used to tell me. She used to say, and this used to really sadden me, she used to say that her grandma had taught her a phrase uh, which was, you know, be prepared to give up your rights for peace. And so she'd say, you know, I give up my rights mm. for peace. Mm. And what she meant was, it was a survival strategy. You know, mm. I'll give up my rights if it means I can have a quiet life because I don't want to be punished anymore. I don't want to be hurt anymore. And until within the Church of England, within, uh, the, the, um, within the seniority, uh, within uh, white colleagues all the way through, until they can say, I'm willing to give up my peace for rights, things mm -hmm. aren't going to change. Until they can say, I'll give up my peace for rights, so things aren't going to change. Mm. It's not just a theoretical thing, something that you read. It's something you have to feel and know. So until the thoughts are changed, I don't think the words have power and I don't think the deeds will flow from those words. Mm. As a Ryan, I've got a question. Sorry, I think you were just going to come into one, but I just want to just want to ask this. Um, sure. when I was, one of the things I read when I was studying theology, and I have no idea who said it because I don't have a good memory, was someone said <laughs> something along the lines of, um, obviously in the Bible it says, God... Um, man, God made man in his own image, right? Like one of mm -hmm. 
Bible says. And then this guy was arguing, well, actually, man made God in his own image um, mm. to be the God that was needed for the man. If the Church of England is called the Church of England, mm-hmm. um, can it ever not be racist? It's a very good point, isn't it? So some people would say it might be more honest if it was called the Church for the English. <laughs> um, and someone else said, no, what about if it was called the Church for England? Mm. Because I, I think part of the issue is so much of the colonial and slave past was done offshore. It was um, it's done out of sight, out of mind. And so, uh, so, so where is like, if you look at the American situation, that all happened on the continent. People knew what was going on there because it was happening there. Whereas um, a lot of the, what was going on for, um, uh, for folks over here was happening in the islands in the Caribbean and, and people couldn't see it. And so there wasn't the, the consciousness, there wasn't, the sense whereas now i think post george floyd's murder people are beginning to get an an awakening of consciousness and how far it will go will it dissipate again i heard you know some of your um, conversation on that i'm I'm a bit of a pessimist i think to be honest um in, in, in some of this but to your question can it if it's called the church of england i think that's a very good i think it's a very good thing to think about because even within um because it, it's encoded within the culture itself mm. and uh so time and time again when the general synod has says we need to open things up we need to change things it's always been on their terms and, and mm. their conditions and so within even within a service there is what we call the rubrics so if you're reading the prayers there are uh, small uh, words in, in um, instructions in red, almost like sort of like um, notes a director might give an actor or something, which tells you how to do the thing. And so, even within the, the very rubrics, the ways in which we're instructed how to uh, portray a service, it is English in its mentality. Right. Uh, with all of the spotlighting and all the pressure that's been going on, uh, the archbishops have recently said that they're going to be looking through. Um, all of the cathedrals, um, all of the churches, and looking at the artwork, which becomes so ubiquitous, it's just all around, it becomes like the wallpaper, but the wallpaper is oppressive because you're seeing white Jesus, you're seeing blonde angels, you're seeing people (laughs) that don't look like you, that don't reflect who you are. I mean, I had a Bible growing up, um, a Hamlin's Bible for children, and Jesus looked Swedish, you know, he had, it was stacked, he was in a six pack. <laughs> wow, Sven you know, Christ. You know, some people talk about the Aryan Jesus. Yeah. And there's, um, one of the pictures is of um, Jesus, the disciples are at a table, uh, there's a woman, I think it's Mary Magdalene, attending to Jesus, and in the background, then if you've seen the film The Butler with Forrest Whitaker, there's a black man holding a tray in this picture you know the optics are so clear wow and (laughs) and the church of england as long as it puts its focus on this blonde white jesus and all that that entails Mm. it's going to lose out for me god is 
in the black guy in the back holding the tray. Yeah. Yeah. You know? some, um, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Some, some people, you know, would argue that in the same way that we're currently seeing a lot of, you know, young black people, particularly creating their own spaces and platforms, which would be in terms of safe spaces for black people to express themselves without having to really bear some of that institutional racism. Some people would argue that black Pentecostalism and Baptist churches, Methodist churches, um, are actually that kind of safe space for black people to express their faith away from some of that institutional racism. Um, mm -hmm. I was wondering what your thoughts were on those kind of churches. I, now I'm not sure how, how you'll take this or your audience will take this, but I think that the sort of work that you're doing is a type of church. Uh, and by that, I mean, it's a, it's a way by which people are coming together People are able to be themselves. People are able to be transparent and open and honest. People are able to express joy and grief, despair, anger. Throughout the scripture, there's um, the middle section of songs known as Psalms, and they are full of every type of emotion under the sun. And if you go back to the original languages, you'll find strong swear words in there. Like, you know, it's explicit, you know, <laughs> it's, 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 um, it's, it's not pre-watershed uh, fair. And, <laughs> And, and with, <laughs> with all that, so I, I think, for me, I think that God is at work, the God of love, the God of liberation is at work where those things are. So where mm. there is freedom, where there is love, I think that God is at work there. And thankfully, sometimes that happens through the church, but not always. Mm. <laughs> um, in terms of Pentecostalism in particular, that was part of um, some of my background. And even in some of the black majority churches, if you go back and look through their history, you'll see that there's a different kind of encoding that's going on. Right. So things like the New Testament Church of God, the Church of God of Prophecy, um, their headquarters are in the southern states of America. Mm. And so when, um, uh, when the black ministers began to get the curriculum, as it were, to pass on to, um, to their congregations, what they also had in the curriculum was the imported biases and limitations that uh, that were found in white people in the deep south right so uh, so things like um uh, race wasn't addressed in a positive sense you know black was always negative white was always wonderful and mm. so there is a historical encoding even in some of those denominations which made them more conservative now there are some great people and I'd happily um, throw you some names if you want to have a conversation about this. There are some, you know, young millennials, um, men and women who are trying to recapture something of the uh, the freedom of Pentecostalism because there's a there's a freedom of body that I don't experience in the Church of England. Mm. Um, in the in the uh, the part of the Church of England I'm in, there's freedom of thought, but there isn't freedom of body. In some of the black majority Pentecostal churches, there's freedom of body, but not freedom of thought. And so <laughs> I would love to be in the space where you've got both. <laughs> and so, you know, I have friends who are working uh, to, to get to some of the roots because Pentecostalism, when it was born, uh, there's uh, someone called William J. Seymour. And in 1906, there's a place called Azusa Street in Los Angeles and he was the son of slaves and against 
you know, this is this is a whole episode in itself, but against all the odds, he formed a church which was immensely popular. But the key things were, as well as this experience and encounter of God, which which transformed how people saw themselves and the way in which people um, were, was that it was a social revolution as well. They had women and men alongside each other ministering. Black and white were alongside each other ministering. And he, as a black man, set up a counterculture where there was segregation outside of that. There was a white Southern Baptist minister who came to Azusa Street and saw this great thing going on and said, the colour land is washed away by the blood. And just this, <laughs> this sense of something that, that was happening. However, there was um, some white folks who were jealous of his success and began to undermine the movement. And eventually the movement lost the social energy that it started with. And so it became more about the, ex- the ecstasy, it became more about the experiential and less about the sort of the grassroots, the earth um, challenge and uh, to what society said. It became less about the challenge to the status quo and just became an escape from the status quo. It's a weird one. I don't know how to even really broach it, but like we're used to hearing about racism within the context of like secular society, uh, corporations, etc. And naturally people are people and um, when racism is systemic, and informed by culture and history is going to find its way to kind of feed into institutions of all sorts, even if it is religious. But for me, with religion being something that, in my opinion, is kind of like an equalizer of of people because we're all meant to be equal under God, um, it feels like this is a type of institution where, you know, is least likely to occur. Um, And I was wondering whether or not that's because... um, and I'm not aware of this, so it might be something that you can um, clarify for me. Is there any like explicit scripture or um, sentiment that condemns racism? Um, I'm aware of like the whole kind of like love your neighbors, you love yourself, etc. But then if you don't see someone of another race as your neighbor and you see, you know, your neighbors essentially, you know, people of the same race or background as you, um, then it's, it's, it's easier to kind of uh, avoid or not really embrace that message. So is, is there something inherent to the fact that um, it's not explicitly condemned, which allows it to manifest more? So when we look at the, um, uh, the Bible, it's a collection of books, um, a number of different genres. Uh, and, and what you have is you have um, different sentiments put alongside one another. And so, you know, the Bible is a library of books. So if I ask um, each of you um, something about a theme and ask you to put a paper together, you'd all have some commonalities, but there'd be different, slightly different emphases depending on what your philosophy was, what your worldview was. And in scripture, we have um, the benefit of having different streams of thoughts alongside one another. So if you were to think of um, different political parties, you know, they have their different manifestos. The Green Party will have one different to the Conservative Party, different to the Labour Party, different to the, um, you know, uh, the Liberal Democrats. And they might be addressing the same topics, but there's different emphases coming out. 
that happens within scripture as well so that to say within scripture there are so many stories of um of inclusion of taking in and loving the stranger but there are also other stories um which are about um keeping uh, a sense of purity of 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 the nation um and so we're we're human and so it reflects my my understanding of scripture that it reflects humanity and it reflects the broad scope so when uh in the journey of scripture when people felt uh more insecure by their neighbors or what have you there's there's a greater sense in which let's let's pull together when they are feeling uh generous and, and wealthy and they're feeling that things are going well there's a greater sense of let's include others and different um there's a, a group of um of books in the bible known as the prophets the prophets in particular have a real emphasis on on inclusion and that anything that's good should be for 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 everybody's good and so through scripture there are yeah that there are a number of of sentences and and key verses but the overall story of scripture is one of inclusion but you do have these other themes and strands to work through and, and like with so many things um uh, what what the difficulty is if, if you cherry pick and so you take one bit so for example i'll tell you something that in terms of the negative way of that there was um, a story about someone called noah who has um, a number of sons one of his sons is is known as ham and and what uh what uh, ham because of a, a kind of a a, a, a father son issue um ham was was cursed and and then some people then mis misread the text to say that from ham flowed black people and so therefore black people have been cursed since near the, the beginning and so and that fallacy i mean actually if, if you actually read the the scriptures carefully you see that that wasn't even in there it was like it was it was it was an angry father who felt embarrassed by his son as a father who's been embarrassed by by his kids i can understand <laughs> um but that fallacy fed through history and then um if you come at it with a white supremacist mindset you're going to latch onto this and use that to back up your own argument um but i would say the argument of scripture is that there is a god of liberation there is a god of love and a god of inclusion and that for me is the undergoing theme that's that's the strongest element that that's the that's the through line of the story although there have been there are depending on where the nation is at the time um different slightly different emphases will come through but there is a a strong loving liberating god at the heart of all of it and as you say we are made in god's image and then i can't remember who 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 said it i don't know if it might be kirkegaard some say but but um but yeah um god made um man in his own image and then man returned the favor um and so i do think that it probably goes back to that that white jesus again um because when we make that person um the head of the church when we equate um god with white supremacy then we're all in for a bad time mm yeah that that that's that's quite powerful um i have another question but i don't know if it's going to be a bit too deep into the theology space but i'll approach it anyway and i guess see what what you guys think about it but 
um, recently I've been thinking a lot about the what I class as the problem of black suffering. Um, from my perspective, black people globally and historically have always kind of experienced um, suffering at the hands of um, other people within society, whether it's you know slavery, colonialism, etc. And at times that leads me to feel like, wow, <laughs> kind of like, why is it always the case that we're somehow at the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to, um, you know, the ability to kind of live free, happy lives. Um, and I think there's a movement or there's a sentiment at least that's growing within our generation where it's people being, uh, becoming a lot more detached from the church or from whatever kind of, um, particularly I say the church let's stick to that just because um, you know when you look at colonial history it kind of went hand in hand with um, slavery and, and colonization. so my question is when we um, historically gave up our um, indigenous belief systems um, in order to take on Christianity and, and other religions um, is there kind of like an intrinsic um, self, I, I don't even know the terminology to use it, but is there something intrinsic to the fact that you've given up these indigenous beliefs um, that leads to these types of dynamics um, as far as that like racism within the, the church? Going? So I think, um, uh, so in one way, I would say that we haven't given up the indigenous beliefs. So, uh, and by that I mean, if I, when I speak to my black and brown clergy, what I realize is that they have their, uh, want of a better word, they have their script as it were, in terms of the, the prayers that's expected, they adopt the role, uh, sometimes they even adopt a voice as they are sharing and welcoming people into uh, the service. <laughs> <laughs> However, when you really get underneath it, you find that they are connecting with, um, with their black and African heritage in other ways. So whether it's um, through music that they listen to, whether it's, um, uh, you spoke at the Black-led Pentecostal churches, sometimes uh, another black clergy friend and I will sneak into the back of a black Pentecostal church and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of get down, we'll dance, we'll, <laughs> we'll engage and then leave before the sermon <laughs> and the offering. <laughs> and, and so I think that actually we've held on to a lot of it but it's been re-expressed in other ways. So I'll, I'll mm -hmm. give you one example of that. Um, in my mum's home, there were so many pictures, uh, religious pictures of Jesus, um, of angels and these sorts of things around. However, these uh, are just expressions of, of the ancestors. These are expressions of, of that were part of a bigger and a longer story and that's where our hope comes from our hope comes from this this distant collective that we've been part of this this sense in which we're we're still connected to those who have gone ahead of us and gone before us and so i think that 
aspects of indigenous beliefs are, are still there. When I, um, when I share, sometimes when I preach, um, I, I feel, you know, I'm doing, I'm connecting uh, with something of my African heritage and, and it opens up space for people. Whoever's in front of me, most of my congregations have been um, uh, either white working class or, or white middle class. And when I've shared something, it feels like it's given them permission to, to, open, to open up as well and to, to connect with something deeper within them too. One of the things I uh, look at in the book is um, I talk about reparations. And there's a chapter called Remember, Remember. And in there, I argue, why is it that each November we will have our, 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 our sort of our Remembrance Day services? And we want to remember those who died in the war. And by those who died in the war, we're thinking about the white ones who died in the war because they're the ones we see in the films and those are the ones mm. who see in the pictures, mm. not the world war that it was. <laughs> um, that aside... Why is it we always want to keep those things in mind? We wear a red poppy and this sort of thing. Well, whenever we talk about things like slavery, so oh, that's in the past. Move, move on. Forget about it. And, and this sense of, of suffering um, that we speak of, um, we, we, we feel willing as, a, as British society to remember white suffering and to, and to think of soldiers that have got PTSD or what have you and, and work towards their support but black suffering also needs rehabilitation and needs support for the trauma um, that we face historically but then you know all the microaggressions uh just bring back that sense of the bigger aggressions that we've had uh but i guess my hope again is going to the guy at the back of the disciples the black guy holding the tray in front of the white Jesus, for me, that's where God is. That's the one who's suffering. That's the one who is silent. And so for me, faith has something which is far deeper than that superficial piece of art that was there. There's something which is, which is real, which is connected, and it is connected to um, our African uh, uh, background. And I think that um, the more we hold on to that, the more we've got to inform who we are as people and even when i talk to uh, white friends who, who are of faith they'll tap into things like um uh, celtic uh, expressions of spirituality um and and there's a there's other things that they're connecting with too as well and so i i fully think that uh, we need to to hold on to that there's a brilliant conversation i have in the book with someone called canon eve pitts who set up a service which year by year has a thousand people attending called the Ancestors Arise Service. And she thought, why don't I celebrate all those ancestors who have, who, who have died, who have gone before? She spoke about going on a, on, on a cruise and looking over the water and just having this sense of, you know, there are hundreds and thousands of Africans at the bottom of the of our oceans um, that were thrown overboard, that were too that were thought to be too sick um, to be sold on as slaves, um, that jumped overboard to escape uh, the uh, the the emotional and the mental death of slavery. And she thought, why do we never think about this? And so she set up a service. It's based in Birmingham. A thousand people come each year to think about the ancestors. And you know, I've not yet been. But I really want to go because it feels like such a powerful and necessary recognition of black suffering 
and for me that Christ is the one who suffers alongside us and that's where that's where Christ is as you made some really interesting points there um particularly sort of when it comes to uh ethnic and ancestral themes with within the church and um within faith um I've I got a question um so what what you highlighted there um when you were talking about sort of um uh, sort of ancestral uh, customs and practices that um, we still sort of hold on to, but we almost kind of, in a way, it's it's like a sort of sideline to what I guess could be described as mainstream Christianity. Um, and it got me thinking. Um, I feel like um, because the church that we sort of know and understand, the, the concept of church for us um, in our sort of, contemporary context um is not something that has existed uh for let's say um you know thousands and thousands of years our understanding of church the concept of church that we have today is a relatively recent one in terms of uh human existence um and i feel like a lot of the time when when we discuss sort of um uh, oppressive structures um institutional um oppression and racism and things like that we get very bogged down in thinking that um you know it, it's it's always been like this and we can't and, and it gets to a point where we feel like we can't even imagine another reality um yeah um and what we're talking about at the moment um sort of white supremacy colonialism um going back to transatlantic slavery um like i said before this is sort of a small part of the lived human existence. So my point is, is not that um, we should take these things lightly, no, because um, this has shaped the reality that we live in today. But my point is, is that there's, there's a much broader um, sort of imagined reality that we could tap into. So I guess my question is, um, is there a way for church, for us in the West to exist without centering uh, whiteness in the sense of um i guess a european uh influence um white supremacist church because um for much of the church's recent history the church has gone hand in hand in whatever the state um has um whatever the state sort of project is so um as you mentioned before the church of england was itself involved in the transatlantic slave trade um, if you look at the church in Spain as well, the church in Portugal, all of them had a hand in um, the transatlantic slave trade. Um, if you look at the sort of the, the Spanish Inquisition in Spain, again, that was um, something that went hand in hand with the state, i.e. Uh, the reconquest of the, the Iberian Peninsula from um, the, 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 um, the Moors, the Arabic Moors. So my point is, can we, or my question is, can we get to a stage with church where you know it's not sort of determined by this very kind of um eurocentric understanding of what church is supposed to be um and a rejection of you know our 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 ethnic um our ethnic customs and beliefs so you even mentioned like um celtic beliefs earlier now celtic beliefs and the church for me that's something that at the moment is something that doesn't there's a misalignment with that 
but now that I'm thinking about it, is there a reason for it for for that for that to be the case? Can we have a church that decenters um, this kind of white supremacist framework that we have um, and celebrates our our kind of individual idiosyncrasies, our individual kind of ethnicities, customs, and backgrounds? Because at the end of the day. Um, as far as I know, the, the God of the Bible didn't create man to be homogenous. Um, he created man to be, you know, m- mankind or humankind, better put, um, to be, you know, multifaceted. Um, it's supposed to be d- diverse. Um, and in the same way that we say, you know, we're sort of created in the image of God, I don't think there's any one single image of God because, you know, God is supposed to be infinite and God is supposed to be um 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 um, omnipresent omniscient um so yeah is there a way to reflect that kind of um that that kind of diversity and still have church can we dissenter whiteness from 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 church that is such a beautiful question Uh, you know i would say unless we can dissenter whiteness it isn't actually church that we're talking about that we're thinking about I, I I love that question, and it's, it's something that I am uh, thinking through a lot through my writing, through my ministry, because there have been so many incredibly uh, gifted individuals who have sought to love their communities, and the church has prevented them um, going forward and and bringing that which they had to bring and that which they had to offer it was seen as as irrelevant and seen as not valuable um and so i am uh, part of a network of churches um, called the heart edge network and that network i th- is, is is feels like a, a kind of a healthier um, part of what can be often a very dysfunctional system in the Church of England. Uh, I've gone as far as to as to say it feels like I was a, a slave in the south who's just crossed the border to the north, and re- <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of realised, oh my goodness! In these settings, when I speak, people listen. In these settings, uh, my voice is valued, and things actually happen. And so I think you know, there's. So there's a little bit of, of, of hope in something like the Heart Edge Network, which is a, a group of Church of England churches and Methodists and Baptists and, and others as well who are seeking, it's called Heart Edge because it's, it's kind of the heart of God working with those at the edges of society. So it's deliberately wanting to start from the outside in is the instinct um, within it. And so, so that's something and, I feel... And that, that to me, so, sorry, sorry to cut you off, that yeah, to me ahead. really comes across as, as Christ-like because if we look at yeah. what Christ did in, in, in the Bible, he was very much about the fringes. He wasn't about, yeah. you know, the state and he wasn't about um, the sort of the religious centre with um, the, yes. the, the, the Pharisees. So, yeah, um, yeah so I just wanted to chime in there. But yeah, yeah sorry to cut you off. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. I, um, I, I've recently... Um, moved to uh, uh to take on a new church in a really diverse area and i remember talking to one of the uh, the, the, the senior clergy and they were saying well in this in this area known as a parish there's a number of people um from minority ethnic backgrounds 
there's a number of people from the LGBTQI communities, and there's a number of people who are, um, there's where there's a lot of poverty, you know, who are you going to really reach out to out of those groups? And I thought, well, isn't that a wonderful thing to have a church which is black, queer and poor? Um, <laughs> you know, um, why don't we put those voices um, at the centre of, of what we do and how we design um, our mission, our ministry, how we think about uh, what's going on. And as you, as you say, quite right, Jesus worked with those in the margins, on, on the edges of society. Uh, those are the voices that he privileged. And, you know, unless uh, the church is able to do that, it, it, for me, it isn't the church, it's less than the church because the church should be about human flourishing. Uh, you know, there's a the belief is that God loves us and accepts us as we are and loves us so much that he wants to bring out the fullness of us in relationship with others. And we learn um, by having people around us who are different to us in age and stage, um, different to us in terms of heritage. And as we come together on this, uh, around uh, the table, we have... Um, a feast of, of bread and wine um, known as communion or the Lord's Supper or Eucharist. Eucharist means thanksgiving. As we come together, thankfully, as, as peers and see one another, and there's a sense of, of honest reflection, that's when we see the image of God, not just in one individual or one type of individual, but in the collective, in the community, with all of our stories, with all of our voices, the image of God is more like a choir than a soloist. And when a church attempts to make it a soloist endeavour, it, it stops being the church for me at that point. And so there is something rich and wonderful. But my, I, you know, my uh, conviction is that the God of love and liberation will work and will move through, through the world. And if the church is ready to be that channel, um, then where love and liberation is, that's, that's church. Where it isn't, God's love and liberation will reflect itself in many other spaces, um, whether it's a Black Lives Matters protest, whether it's um, Over the Bridge podcast. Um, God's love and liberation will be felt and known, and the impact that things like what you guys are, are, are up to, I see as testament, you know, which is wonderful and I'm going to take that question and if you, any of you have any tips or thoughts on how that can happen I'd love to hear from you because I'm determined to do what I can while I've got the strength um, to make that possibility. Thanks Azariah that's that, yeah that was a really good answer and yeah I think it's just I guess part of um, I guess this whole process that the world is currently experiencing now of reassessing who and what we are as a society um we've not really we've kind of been on autopilot for for too long or at least too many people have been on autopilot for too long um and i think you know when you sort of just leave things on autopilot and become complacent that's where you find decadence um so i think it's yeah it's it's, it's really important that we just kind of reassess all of the things that we take for granted because um like I said before, it's a very anachronistic position to have where you think that things have always been this way because they haven't. Um, and it's so important that we challenge things that um, are unjust and things that aren't, aren't working. So 
Yeah, um, I, I guess this kind of, the question that I had and 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 your, and your answer, I guess, is just sort of a starting point for for all of us to really to really consider and imagine, a, you know, a, a, a different and new reality. So, um, yeah, thanks. I, I have Azura. a, a, a Azura, I have a, I have a question. Um, sure, go ahead. And there was an interesting part of the book where you talk about this this chat you've had with um, Reverend Rose um, Hudson Walkin, and yeah. It's a very um, interesting discussion, but one of the, the points, um, I mean, there were a couple of pertinent points. One was kind of being able to see the other um, person, and i.e. that was someone who was non-white in the church, and how you would de deal with that. But following on from, from then, there was a, a, an interesting discussion about the American system in the church, and it was leading more towards Malcolm X's thinking Whereas over a, on this side of the pond, people were thinking more towards Martin Luther King. And I just wanted to see, what, why do you think that's the, the case? And then um, following on from that, you know, ultimately, who's responsible? And this is more a question from Malau, I think. Who's, whose responsibility is, is it actually to dismantle the institutional racism in the church? And what does this actually look like apart from, you know, the obvious loving your neighbor? What, what, are, the, what are the kind of some of the actionable things? So, in terms of, um, so throughout the book, I, I refer quite a few times to Martin Luther King, and I refer to some speeches which are not always the, the ones which are most popular. And one of the things I, I talk about is where he's, he's having a conversation with a friend, and, and that friend recorded this in his memoir, where Martin Luther King said, I am afraid I'm integrating people into a burning house and and the friend was like oh my goodness uh, you know uh, what do we do then and and so Martin Luther King's answer was well I think uh, we need to get buckets and, and try and put the fire out and I thought you know it's an interesting thing because I one response could have been well we need to get away from this burning house and we need to do something else and build something else. Uh, in terms of Martin Luther King and, and Malcolm X approaches, I think you need both. And, and the little I know about both men is that it seemed that they, they actually came to a point where over time, Malcolm X's uh, viewpoint uh, grew um, uh, to, to, to an extent of, 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 of a wider inclusion. And it feels as if some of the conversations that Martin Luther King had, his perspective began to, to shift away. And so I think actually there was quite a bit of overlap in later Malcolm and, and later Martin. Uh, and I guess um, three aspects, you know, there is, there's agency that um that both of these thinkers had there um was anger um that was channeled um both of these um thinkers and also there is um there's an agenda that they had and one of the problems is that the church of england the general synod which is the ruling body over time has tried to eliminate all those three things in black and brown people whether they 
lean more towards integration or whether they lean more towards um, separating and, and doing something um, more on their own. Uh, there's always been an attempt to take away a, a sense of agency um, by saying, you know, leave this with us. as a sense in which they've been taking away our agenda and saying, no, 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 um, this is what we're going to do. You leave it with us. And there's a sense in which they've taken away our sense of anger because anger is, all anger is, is energy, you know, which, which, which can be used um, to bring about um, something new and, to, and to, to, shape, to shape things. But anger's been taken away because people say, well, let's not be emotional about this. Let's be rational about this. Let's have another commission, another review. Uh, earlier on in the conversation, there was a sense in which the Church of England and the government have gone hand in hand. A most recent example of that is just in the last couple of weeks, Church of England said we're going to launch a race action uh, commission. Uh, we're going to put a task force together to look at where the Church of England is institutionally racist and will work to have a zero tolerance on racism. But this was said a week after Boris Johnson and the government had said that the government was going to launch a commission. And so, as you say, the church is always following on. As to whose responsibility it is, I don't think you can dismantle a house from the inside. Um, I think it needs an outside-in approach. So in my book, initially, my conclusion, I had the sort of a, a 10 point plan for what the Church of England needs to do in order to become uh, deeply inclusive and to reflect uh, the church that I believe a God of love and liberation uh, would want uh, to, to, um, to see and would want to, to support. However, after I wrote that, it felt as if I'd... Um, put together a piece of music in the minor key uh, with lots of cello in it. And then at the end, I've just got something very, very carnivalesque uh, right at the end there. It's like, it just didn't seem to fit. It felt like too much of a Hollywood ending. And I realized at that point that my place in this wasn't to work to dismantle um, uh, the church from the inside out because over the last 40 years people have been making recommendation after recommendation after recommendation for the church um, to be the church for the church to, um, to to show that will for the church to have those thoughts as well as the words as well as the deeds uh, to make a difference however it's as if we as black and brown people have been avatars. We, we've been in a different dimension. We haven't been understood or heard or responded to. Uh, and so I, I, I don't know what's going to happen with the Church of England and what's going to shift with it. I've given, you know, a thought like the network of, of mentioned Heart Edge, uh, something that's positive within it. However, I, I think that this is the origin story for black and brown clergy. There's an Arrested Development song which says each generation needs its own revolution. And I believe that. Often you see history works in cycles. And it feels as if with all of what's going on in the world around us, with all, the, all of the push to, towards the right, um, things like Brexit. There's a brilliant theologian uh, called Anthony Reddy who's written a book called Theologizing Brexit. It helps us to think about this sort of stuff. With all of that... Um, and then we're having this 
this fresh wave with, uh, with COVID-19, we all became vulnerable and so we're able to see the vulnerabilities of others in a new way. And then the murder of George Floyd happened at just the point where everyone's attention, uh, we were all still enough to be able to take it in, absorb it and do something about it. Um, you know, so there's, there's a fresh wave now of something which is happening, which is moving. And, you know, I, I, I want, all I want to do is to, uh, is, is to uh, platform the voices of those who have gone before me, say, this is a lament. This is a, I'm in the grief cycle here. Um, this, is, this is my story. This is the story of the Church of England. It doesn't have to be this, but it has been this so far. Whose responsibility is it for dismantling it? I think it needs an outside-in approach. So I think whether that's human rights type approaches, whether that's um, uh, courts type of approaches, um, I don't think we can do it from the inside. Uh, but, you know, there are others who have been thinking about this and I'm sure, you know, you might well have some thoughts yourself because uh, for me, for the Church of England to change, the government has to change. Our universities have to change. Um, the way business works has to change. You know, England itself needs a new consciousness. Um, and until that happens, I can't see how the church, unfortunately, is going, to, is going to stand out because so often the Church of England has followed behind instead of leading from the front. And that's what I'd love the church to do that. But if it does, I don't know. But even if it doesn't, black and brown um, people of faith within the, the Church of England need to come together and and link hands with others and other organizations institutions and say you know enough is enough let's come together let's rehabilitate let's recognize one another um let's figure out how we can have that agency let's find good channels for our anger and let's set the agenda and let's continue to do the work that we feel called to do within our communities that are so desperately in need of that suppression and oppression to be lifted so that their natural abundance and variance can flow. Wow. Um, <laughs> you know, I think you really have, and of course, yeah, you've been a minister, like it's probably comes with the territory, but you have a very, very, very like poetic way in which you, you speak. And yeah, that was a really powerful, a powerful statement. And I think probably a nice place to end and wrap up our conversation today. So firstly, thank you, Azariah, for joining us. Um, a lot of food for thought that you've left us with and I'm sure um, you know the guys and the, our listeners um, have taken a lot out of this conversation and it's something that we hopefully will continue online and and you know after this this um, episode comes out um, I was hoping Azara too could you just remind us when your book is coming out and where the our audience can buy it absolutely um, so the book is called Ghost Ship and it's my author name, so it's A-D-A, France Williams, and the book is out on the 10th of July, and it's available um, through Amazon and available through my publishers, SCM Press, um, and it'd be great if, um, yeah, if people read it and want to engage with it, that'd be absolutely wonderful, and, and just to say, it's been a real honour and a privilege to be uh, sharing with you and talking with you. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you, you get it a lot, but you know, you are really having a big impact. And over the last couple of years, I kept thinking they're going to stop doing it because they're getting so busy um, with other things in life. Um, but I'm so, uh, you know, I just want to commend your dedication to this cause and what you're doing. 
you know, it's more than a podcast. This is something which uh, provokes people's thoughts and provokes people's words and provokes people's deeds to become better versions of themselves, individually and collectively. So I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Azariah, thank you. It's, it's really humbling to hear sort of words like that. Um, and I think, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to really speak for the other guys, but just for me personally, all of this for for myself is just, it's a way to learn, really. Um, you know, we've had some really amazing guests, um, including yourself, that have come on and have spoken at length about the things that they're passionate about. And that's really what we want to do. We want to just kind of amplify um, these voices give a platform to these perspectives because um, yeah, it's so important that um, these things are heard, these things are shared. Um, as you said, so that you know we collectively as a society can can do better. So yeah, it's it's really humbling to hear hear words like that, Azariah. And just to say, yeah, for me personally, thank you so much. And I'm sure the guys. Yeah. And uh, I just want to say, um, I just want to say, Azariah, like that was so informative in a way where like it's something I've been thinking about. And it's just really useful to hear sort of an inside perspective on that. Also, like my mum will be really happy that I was talking to a minister on a Sunday because it's definitely been a while. So she will be personally <laughs> happy that that's what I spent the Sunday <laughs> afternoon doing. Um, and I think it's really fitting that Sunday as well. And we recorded, we've recorded this thinking about the church and it's definitely eye-opening. Quaker, are you going to wrap up? And... Yeah, sure. Um, listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. And by the time this episode comes out, I'm sure the the book could be out. So please do go and purchase it if you want to engage with this topic a little bit more. Um, As always, if you want to get in touch with us, we're there at OTB Podcast UK on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to send us an email, we always love receiving emails from you. OTB Podcast UK at gmail.com. Cool. So everyone enjoy the rest of your days and take care. Over and out.